This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash bookstacked. That's audibletrial.com slash bookstacked. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to Bookmarked, a young adult book podcast brought to you by Bookstack.com. This is episode 27, and in episode 27, we're interviewing author Lexa Hillier. We've got that coming up in just a moment, so stay with us. Welcome to Bookmark, episode 27, and this episode is very exciting because we have an interview for you with author Alexa Hillier, and uh, we actually just finished the interview, and I'm here with Michael, and Hi. yeah, so Michael, how do you think the interview went? Yeah, it went good, yeah, it's, it's the first time I've ever actually done a, an author interview, so hope I'm, I don't, hope I don't sound too nervous throughout it, but yeah. <laughs> No, I think you were fine. Yeah, I think it went really well. Um, Lexa is a very interesting person, I think, because she is a YA author, but she's also had this long career in the industry. I think she told us she's been in there since 2003. So she's really kind of had a front row seat as far as how YA has evolved and, and grown over the years. Um, she was an editor. She also started her own business with Lauren Oliver. So um, we dive into all of that in the interview. We kind of ask her about her journey and how she got started in publishing, how she became an editor, how she started her business, what it's been like to write books. We we cover all of it. And so I think it's an exciting interview and I, I think people are going to like this episode. So Yeah, agreed. So with that said, we're not going to stall any longer. Here is our interview with Lexa Hillier. We're here today with Lexa Hillier. It's very exciting. Lexa, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You are a YA author. You have been an editor. You started your own business in the publishing company. So I think this is going to be a real treat for everyone. But before we got, get and dive into all of that, just kind of wondering if you could go ahead and kind of introduce yourself and let everyone know a little bit about who you are. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, my name is Lexa Hillier. As you said, I am an editor. Um, I run a business called Glasstown Entertainment. Um, and I'm also an author of three novels, three YA novels. The first one I wrote is called Proof of Forever. Um, it's sort of a, a speculative contemporary um, about four friends who have grown apart, but they get kind of one last chance to, to relive the summer that they were still close. And then I have a fantasy duology that is essentially a, a fairy tale reimagining sort of mashup. Those books are called Spindlefire and Winterglass. Um, and then I also have a book of poetry that I wrote a few years ago called Acquainted with the Cold. So that's kind of the the scope of me. That's awesome. And Michael and I spent, I think, the last few weeks kind of diving into your books. Michael, you read? Yeah, I read Proof of Forever. And I really enjoyed it. I didn't know much going into it. Yeah. When I, when I realized it was kind of like a time travel, like accidentally zapped back in time, I was, <laughs> I was all in for that. <laughs> awesome. And then I was reading Spindlefire, and I, I didn't finish like the last twenty percent. <laughs> I oh, just no. got oh no, I, cliffhanger. Yeah, I started a new job uh, <laughs> the last week, and so it's just been a bit crazy. So I'm going to finish it probably this weekend. But <laughs> All right, well, then I will not spoil the ending. Yeah, um, but it's been I've enjoyed it too. Like I, I really enjoy those kind of twists on fairy tales and all that. So it's been it's been a good read. Awesome, thank you. Um, so I think one of the things we wanted to know was just kind of before you became a published author and all that, you, you already had a career in publishing. You know, we kind of yeah. talked about you being an editor and stuff. And so yeah. I guess 
had you always wanted to go into publishing and, and why did you want to go into publishing? Yeah, you know, it's one of those careers. Um, I mean, there were so many different types of jobs in publishing, which I think when you're in college, um, you don't necessarily realize or high school or whatever. I think more young people are aware now than they used to be, especially with, you know, internships and stuff like that. But I know when I was in school, I kind of was clueless about it. And I remember I had my Shakespeare professor who I adored kept telling me I should go to law school and be a lawyer. So he's like, well, you're very analytical with words. So do that. That's where you'll actually make money. Um, and then, but I had a poetry teacher and I remember he was talking to me about his literary agent and I was like, okay, what is that? And, you know, he told me how an agent works and kind of discovers people's work and helps them get their book deals and things like that. And how a lot of poets sometimes don't, get literary agents because poetry doesn't on the opposite end of the spectrum from lawyers poetry doesn't isn't exactly notorious for being a money maker so he felt you know very lucky that he had this agent who was advocating for him so i got this idea in my head okay i want to be an agent because i'm going to discover all of these unknown poets and help them get book deals and it's going to be amazing and i'm going to get to you know just read all these manuscripts and kind of like be at the forefront of like avant-garde, you know, writing or whatever. And um, fairly naive, but then that dream kind of fell flat on its face when I moved to New York. And I did, I did intern at, at a literary agency and I did learn a lot there, but it was one of those things where I think I interviewed for maybe 20 different literary agencies and kept getting those, you know, kind rejections like, oh, well, you were one of our top choices, but, you know, unfortunately, it's not going to work out or whatever. And so, <clears throat> you know, I'm just sort of like pounding the pavement looking for a job. And then someone said, hey, you know, maybe you should go for this spot at HarperCollins. And I think I was kind of intimidated because the big publishing houses, I mean, they're just they're, they're kind of very corporate, you know, and and. Um, there's just a lot of sort of inner workings that from the outside, you have no idea how they work. But I ended up getting that job. I, um, I was hired as the assistant to uh, Abby McAdden, who was the editor at the time of um, the Princess Diaries. It was sort of the age of growing okay, awesome. up. And I remember in my interview, we basically just talked about how we were annoyed with the movie adaptation. <laughs> I like you. You seem very honest. <laughs> anyway, so that was how I got my start. Um, and I don't think I even at first realized that I wanted to do young adult or that I wanted to do editorial. And it was one of those sort of magical things where it suddenly hit me while I was doing it that it was such a perfect fit because, you know, editorial is where you get to sit down and actually dissect the books and put them back together and make them better. And that is really what my skill set was, even though I didn't quite realize that. So I fell in love with it. And I really fell in love specifically with teen books, which that was a category that was just starting to become huge back then, back in 2003, which ages me somewhat. So it was just an exciting time to be in YA. And I think that YA is an exciting category because, you know, it's all about experiences that are kind of happening for the first time. So everything feels kind of larger than life and everything feels high stakes and important and everything that happens in your life can really inform who you become and change you. So I think it's, it's kind of a really transformative age and that's part of what makes it such a joy to, to write for and to edit for. Yeah, so I'll just say uh, a lot of readers kind of only ever see like the final product of a book when it comes out. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of like go into like the sort of things that you do and like kind of like cool or overlooked aspects that a reader yeah. might not be aware of? Um, I mean, there are, <laughs> there are actually probably a million little things that, that readers wouldn't necessarily be aware of that go on in the publishing house to actually make the book. You know, it's like every tiny thing matters. I think that's something that, you know, my mentors in publishing really instilled in me. And at first it was really stressful. I remember I had, when I interned at an agency, um, the agent I worked for kept, we used to print out the manuscripts to submit them to the editors and we would, you know, package them in these mailings. And he was like, you have to treat every package like precious gold. And we would type out our the address labels. 
And if my, the address on the label wasn't perfectly centered and perfectly aligned, he'd throw away the label and make me do it again. I remember literally like just typing up the same label 15 times and he'd be like, no, it has to be perfect. And then it has to be perfectly centered on the package. And like, it has to arrive on the editor's desk and look like the most valuable, important thing they've ever seen. So that kind of attention to detail. And then when I worked at Harper, it was kind of the same. Harper has like, it's the most buttoned up, I think of all the publishers. They have a zillion and one memos. Like I always used to joke, like if you have to sneeze, you need to fill out a memo first. Um, but it forces you to be very kind of organized and aware of all these little aspects of everything that goes into a book. And, you know, like my boss there, she was always very careful to write handwritten notes to the authors every time there was, you know, a copy of their galley came in or things like that. And so she really instilled in me that attention to detail and that that personal touch that can really go a long way. Another thing that that I think readers don't know, this is just like a nerdy thing, but um, the actual physical books are printed in 16 page signatures. They're, they're called signatures, which means like basically 16 pages. Every 16 pages is a different signature and it has to do with how they bind it, I guess, and how it's actually printed on like a larger piece of paper. Um, Anyway, I just think there's a lot of holdovers from old school publishing and how how printers used to work. You know, like they still describe art as two color or four color, you know, if it's black and white or if it has multiple colors. And, um, you know, now printers are all digitized, but like that it used to really matter, be like a whole different printer or whatever that did black and white printing for picture books and things like that. So there's just a lot of these kind of old terminology from back when the printing press was like, you know, kind of originated. And I kind of love that about it. And that's the signature thing. Like, that's why, you know, if you look up on Amazon or whatever, the page count is always going to be like 340 or 356 or 372. Like there are these certain quantities. So anyway, I just, I kind of love nerding out about all the little kind of physical things that go into it. Well, I feel like you can kind of see that sometimes too. Like when you hold a book, if I'm understanding correctly with the signatures and stuff, if you look at the binding, it's kind of like separated a little yeah, bit. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Glue all of the signatures together in the end. Yeah, yeah. That's neat. And what I think that's interesting too, what you said, because I was interviewing an author a few months ago and he had worked with HarperCollins. And one of his big takeaways with HarperCollins and I guess working in traditional publishing mm -hmm. uh, was he felt it was very archaic. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think he liked it as much though, <laughs> as you might have. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, I think that all the big houses are are getting pretty innovative these days. But um, you know, it is a very old industry. Um, I mean, it's been around for a long time, and so yeah, there are a lot of a lot of operations and a lot of ways of thinking that can become entrenched. So it's this interesting mashup of that with you know our current reality, which is that like things are constantly changing and every year there's sort of a new demand whether it's like a technological advancement or just sort of like a realization of the readership changing so they're trying <laughs> yeah and then it was it was kind of like that penguin when you met lauren oliver and that yeah. that began sort of a, a long trajectory of where you're at now <laughs> you kind of like share your experiences of how that happened and yeah, I'm actually heading to her house in Connecticut later today. Um, <laughs> <That's> so, <awesome. laughs> yeah. Um, so after Harper, I then moved over to Penguin and, um, and I was hired there kind of explicitly to do like in-house IP, which is sort of different than traditional editing in a way, because it's more about um, basically making up story concepts that, that you think will sell well and that would be, you know, great to see on the shelf and then and then reaching out to authors and kind of saying, hey, can you write this? Can we work together on it? Sort of collaborating very early on in the process. So that was uh, an amazing learning experience for me. And when I came over there, um, that's when I met Lauren Oliver. At the time, she was not yet Lauren Oliver. Um, she hadn't written her books yet and she was the assistant in the group. Um, but for anyone who's ever met her, she has a very strong personality, um, uh, very commandeering, not exactly an assistant type. So, um, at first she didn't really like me. I don't think <laughs> like I came into the office and was sort of like, well, where's the file for this? And, you know, where's the contract for that? And, 
she'd be sort of just glaring at me, like, I don't know, go look in the filing cabinet. Like she was not interested in being anyone's assistant, but she was obviously brilliant. And so she was doing a lot of editorial work, um, you know, even though it was earlier on in her career. So she was really sort of absorbing everything that we were doing to, to make books and to do IP. And I think that was a, a huge way in which she got the confidence to kind of decide, oh, I'm gonna write a YA novel. So by the time she started writing her first book, which was Before I Fall, we were we were good friends at that point. <laughs> we got over our initial rivalry. And, and then she sold that book and left Penguin thinking she needed to focus full time on just sort of launching her career as a writer. But then I think she really missed working with other authors. And she's somebody who just always has to have her hands in a million things at once. And likes to keep really busy. And so, and I was meanwhile feeling like I was creating all of these book ideas, but in this big corporate environment where you feel a little bit less visible and also a little bit at the same time, a little more constrained with what the publisher thinks um, you should be creating. And so I, I learned a lot and I, I definitely had a great time at Penguin, but I think I was ready to kind of expand my wings somewhat. And I didn't know exactly what that could look like. So Lauren Oliver and I kind of like hatched this plan together. I don't know. It was sort of like, <laughs> I don't know if it was bold of us or just, you know, kind of naive or whatever, but we were, we were sort of drinking wine one day and talking about, um, talking about our, our skill with plotting books and how much we loved it. And we sort of just looked at each other and said like, oh, you know, I mean, we could totally have our own business. And then it was one of those moments of like, wait, but are you serious or are you joking? You know, I'm serious. Are you serious or are you joking? Well, I'm, I'm kind of serious too. If you're serious, then I'm serious. And so that's kind of how it started. And it was just a lot of conversations over wine for the first few months, you know, and taking notes and and trying to figure out, you know, how does one build a business at all? And what do we want ours to be in particular? And, and what matters to us? And what can we do well? What can we offer that's different? And um, having all those kinds of conversations. And then, you know, we eventually said we have to set a launch date. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. So we gave ourselves till um, this was the fall of 2009, I think. And then we gave ourselves till May 2010 because that was like BEA, Book Expo, always happens in May. So we said, okay, we're going to launch in May and that's our goal. And just we're just going to force ourselves to be ready. So that's what we did. That's awesome. For those who don't know what Glasstown Entertainment is, can you maybe share with us what you do there and, and yeah. what that business does? Yeah, absolutely. So Glasstown is essentially, it's a, it's a production company um, that produces both books and also film and television. Um, we started out just in books, which obviously, you know, came from our background in, in editing and writing, but we always sort of felt like what we're creating is story and we love words and we love how words, you know, and language can convey story and can convey emotion and character and things like that. And that can be done across like multiple different platforms. So we never, I, I heard the term recently platform agnostic and I'm like, that sort of applies, you know, like. We want to tell the story, but we're happy to tell it in whatever way can reach people. So we got our start in books, but we we um, over a few years started to realize how much we wanted to expand into film and television and really be involved creatively as opposed to just sort of saying, hey, we have this book. Does someone else want to buy it and make it into a, a movie or a TV show? We really wanted to be able to be creatively involved and creating things for, for both sides. So um, we kind of evolved. We initially launched as Paper Lantern Lit. And then it was really only a year and a half ago, or a little less, that we relaunched as Glasstown. So it's a super collaborative company. It's uh, all women. Laura runs the LA side now, and we have one other person out there. And then I think we have like five people on the New York team. So it's you know it's a small company and very creative. Um, I always tell people like if you work in a publishing house, your day to day experience there is probably. 15% creative, 85% sort of bureaucratic and administrative. And not don't get me wrong, those meetings are really fun and informative. And there's there's a lot of other things that that you're responsible for when you're in a house. But the way we work kind of separate from publishers, it's more the flip. It's like 85% creative. 
Um, so it's really fun, but it's also very exhausting on our poor little brains. Um, but we love it. And yeah, it's just, it's very hands-on. You know, we help authors um, break into the industry who might not otherwise have been able to break into it. We also work with authors who are already published, um, but who might be looking for uh, a new opportunity, either to kind of explore a different category, a different genre, or just kind of, you know, increase their reach and, and challenge themselves. And we always say that you know, we're here to help and to give people a leg up. And at the same time, we're not going to make things easy for you. You know, like we want to push everybody because we actually want to make all of our authors better than they were before. And I really take that seriously as an editor that, um, you know, that that's part of our job and part of our ethos is how do we discover voices and stories that matter, but then also really elevate those voices. And so much of editing is about kind of chiseling out the person's voice, you know, and separating what makes you a good writer from what is just sort of your habits that are sort of stuck to your writing. I think that's neat because sometimes when I hear editors talk, or I think sometimes when we think of an editor, we just think they're going in and like fixing the story and making tweaks and stuff. But the way you're describing it is that you're, you're also there trying to help the author themselves grow. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always sort of joke that editing is sort of half therapy. Um, <laughs> I've never heard it described that way. But, you know, I mean, because writing certainly is, right? You know, we all know that when you write, you are processing your own experience and your own emotions, even if it's in a completely fantastical setting or, you know, a story that you wouldn't necessarily think is biographical. It's still a way of really kind of excising demons and, and dealing with things that were unconscious and, and making them conscious on the page. So of course, editing is then going to be therapy, right? Because you're sort of like sorting through all the the nonsense that somebody put on the page and saying, okay, well, here's what, here's what I'm hearing, which is exactly what a therapist in a therapist's office does, right? You say a bunch of stuff and they go, you know, what I'm hearing is you're still angry with your father or whatever. So um, as an editor, you kind of have to hear what are the themes in here that are sort of struggling to get out? And then you you help excavate those. Yeah. So in this this like extensive past you've had, like in the publishing world, like at what point did you start thinking about publishing your own books? And has like that past as an editor and everything you've explained about it, does yeah. that influence the way that you look at writing now? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I was very timid about publishing my own books. You know, I, I, I thought in terms of writing that I would kind of keep my writing life separate by only writing poetry, but then working in fiction. And so I thought, okay, they're just sort of two separate things. And so I would go to a ton of different, you know, every semester, really, I would go to a different poetry class. I took classes at NYU and the New School and the 92nd Street Y. And I was always kind of taking subways all around the city to go to different uh, poetry readings and scribbling in notebooks on, on the train and things like that. And... And then I went and got an MFA in poetry as well. And then after that is when I published my poetry book. Um, and I think that having the MFA and, and working so closely with other authors and with, you know, with those mentors from my program gave me the confidence to publish that book. And then I still kind of was too chicken to publish uh, fiction for a few years. And I think it just, I don't know, my walls kind of finally wore down. Um, and I, I do really credit my work at Glasstown as being part of that because what we do is so hands-on and it is so collaborative. And I think for so long, I felt like, you know, since I worked with so many other writers, they would sort of judge me if I had my own book out there and that it would somehow have to be on this pedestal, have to be this example of all the things that I'm trying to tell other authors to do. They're going to suddenly think I'm a fraud if I didn't do it all perfectly in my own books. So I felt very like I set myself up to fail. But I think after a while, I sort of gave myself permission to to realize that like every creative process is collaborative and messy and, you know, a kind of just a form of self-expression. And I finally kind of got brave enough to do it. But I think it's tough. I think some people, I mean, I think, look, of course, my connections in the publishing world and my sort of education as an editor helped, I think, right? Like it helped me think about how to make my story structured in a way that was strong and effective in terms of the plotting. It helped me to understand, you know, what are sort of like uh, hooks that will draw in readers and things like that. But I, I often feel more often than not that being an editor, the editor part of my brain just sort of makes me crazy as I write. I mean, it's very, very, very hard for me to turn off that voice. So, uh, 
you're always in the middle of a scene thinking, oh, well, there's gonna be some jerk on Goodreads who criticizes this moment and says that it came too easily for the character and you get defensive and you're arguing in your head with some made up person, you know, or or you're sort of thinking, oh, well, you know, my, my editor is is gonna, you know, poke a hole in this moment and say that, the, you know, the, I'm overwriting it or whatever it is. So it's really, really hard for me to get those voices out of my head when I'm working, but you know, I manage somehow. <laughs> I like to listen to music. I think that's part of it. Somehow it's like my brain is distracted and then I can kind of just be in the story more. I, I'm curious too, because I think when you're talking about Goodreads reviews and stuff, when you go and you put a book out, you're you're kind of allowing yourself to be a bit vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're letting people, even you mentioned, you know, writing's kind of like therapy, you know? <laughs> um, and I, just kind of when you mentioned that, it, it reminded me of the blog post you wrote for 88 Cups of Tea. Mm -hmm. which, um, if, I will probably link it in the show notes because it's a great read. So everybody should go and listen. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Also, everybody should just be aware of 88 Cups of Tea. Such yeah. a great show. Yeah. Um, but is that, I guess, how have you found, I mean, you, in, in that piece, you talk about being shy. Mm -hmm. And how how do you reconcile that then? How, how have you been able to overcome that? Or have you overcome that? How do I overcome being shy? Um, yeah, it's funny because I... I was just listening to, I don't remember now which podcast it was, one of these writing podcasts, um, maybe it's first draft, I forget, some interview with an author and they were saying, you know, so many performers get stage fright and even, you know, the most accomplished performers sometimes in an interview will sort of admit, oh, you know, I threw up in a trash can right before I walked on stage or whatever. And then they come on and you would never know as an audience member. And, you know, they were talking about how, you know, you sometimes just have to accept that anxiety or or you know imposter syndrome or all of those things are just kind of part of the life. And so I think for me, you know, being really shy, you might not notice it, you know, to the outside person because it's just a feeling. It's sort of a feeling you live with, but you stop acting on. I guess you know, like, um, and of course, I still do in certain settings. I still like I'll, I'll go to a conference, you know, and the whole point of going to a conference is to talk about your books and to meet other authors and to you know, to mingle and to network and all of those things. And I'll go and I'll just show up for my talk and then I'll sort of like run away after and maybe say hi to one person. But, you know, I still sometimes really get in my head and, you know, it's weird. I've, I've been in this industry for 15 years. I have three books out. I'm very proud of my books. And yet I do, I get shy. I compare myself to other authors. I think, oh, you know, they're going to know something I don't know, or, you know, they're going to be better than me or whatever. I don't even know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, those, those kind of anxious thoughts, I think you just have to accept them, but not let them have power over your actions. So I think that's been a big journey for me. And then, like I said, you know, with regards to getting braver about actually publishing my books after I worked at Glastown, I think, I guess what I mean to say is if you have a community that you feel supported by, even sort of a mini community um, in my case, it was my my team at Glastown, just kind of knowing there are people there to bounce your ideas off of and who are kind of nodding their heads saying, yes, you know, this is a good idea. You should be writing. This is this is a good thing. And I think a lot of people found that on the Internet. And I'm I'm not as much of a Twitter person, you know, so I think to me, I had to find that in person. Um, and I think I had that with poetry. You know, I was in these this poetry writing group for like two to three years and that was about five people and it was super supportive and we would meet in coffee shops every other week. But I just didn't have that for fiction. So I think when I finally sort of did, it allows you to not be so shy. But it, I don't know that it ever really goes away. <laughs> Moving on to like your actual books themselves, like a mm -hmm. common theme is like the bonds between female characters. You've got like the sisters in Spindlefire mm -hmm. and the, the four girls in Proof of Forever. Was that something like before you started writing either of them that you consciously went in thinking, you wanted to write these kind of you know, female it's dynamics? I, I'd love to say yes, but I don't know that it started out as a conscious desire to do that. Um, I think it is extremely important to me to represent female relationships. I just don't know that I had articulated that to myself when I first started. So, you know, with Proof of Forever, I think like with many books, you know, it kind of a feeling came to me and a feeling of wanting to explore friendship and second chances and 
just that kind of nostalgia for summertime in your teen years and all of the sort of angst and and feeling that goes along with that. And I knew I wanted there to be romance and I'm definitely a, a, a romantic at heart, but I think it's funny. There's always this urge I feel when I'm actually writing to, to use romance as a way to help the female character, not to help the female character, but to, to help highlight the female character's growth, I guess, as opposed to making it the be all and end all is how is this romance gonna work out? Instead, it's there kind of on the side, supporting a larger story, which is more about um, identity and coming of age for the female character. And so then, you know, the other female characters and their relationships to each other end up kind of battering more or at least equally. Um, I mean, I think especially with Proof of Forever, since there's four, you know, four girls who are friends, you know, it's funny, it's a friendship story, definitely. But as I wrote it, I kind of realized it's really four coming of age stories. And then how does the friendship kind of bracket and support that and test that at times? And often there are definitely times where the, the friendship is tested because, you know, when people are growing up, that's what happens. Sometimes relationships go away in service of you becoming the person you need to become. And that could be, you know, romantic relationships, friend relationships, even, you know, familial relationships. So, um, I guess that's all a long way of saying what I'm most interested in is sort of these like these female journeys of growth, but then related to that is is how they kind of how they support and challenge each other. But yeah, and then I think I, I just it became more obvious to me with Spindlefire. You know, I I do I have two sisters and I I do have always loved sister stories, you know, like I um you know loved little women growing up and um you know a number of Jane Austen novels like Sense and Sensibility or or whatever that um and and Pride and Prejudice of course you know that have these big families of sisters and um I love portrayals of sisterhood that are complicated and nuanced and not just lovey-dovey you know um another book I loved growing up was it's called Jacob Have I Loved and uh it's about twin sisters um but they kind of have a a deep I don't want to say rivalry exactly, but they have a strained relationship in a certain way, even though they deeply love each other. And um, I think I just have always been moved by those relationships. And even I was having this memory that came out of nowhere. One of the first books that I worked on when I was an assistant at Harper. Um, So I was, I was not, you know, responsible for editing it, but you know, when you're an assistant, you often will read manuscripts alongside the editor and give your feedback to, or help collate their notes and things. And, um, there was a book by Rachel Vale, and it was sort of a younger teen book about a girl who who has a crush on a guy, but then her mother, who is single, starts dating the boy's dad. And so it's just like a fun rom-com or whatever. But there's this line towards the end of the book where the mother ends up getting married, I think. And just before she's about to, you know, she gets remarried. Before she's about to walk down the aisle, she kind of stoops down to the do- the teen daughter and says, you know, you'll always be my number one. And for whatever reason, I just like started sobbing at that that moment in the book. And I think I realized, oh my God, I thought this was a rom-com, but really this was a story of a, of a daughter and a mother. And you, you know, it's like you're, you're selling it as a rom-com. You think that's what the story is. That's what the action is all centered around. But the real emotional heart of, of that girl growing up was, you know, was sort of her role in, in her, in her mom's life. And, and, how do you know that somebody still loves you, but you can kind of grow up and grow beyond that? I don't know. I'm not being very articulate about it, but I think it was sort of the first realization of those, those strong female, female bonds and how they are so formative in terms of people discovering who they are. I don't know if that was a long winded kind of answer to your question. No, it was great. Yeah. Kind of as well. I kind of, I love the, like the realism and proof of forever with the, the four friends, like when they do go back in time, they're, Mm-hmm. They automatically become like a perfect friend group again. Right. And all four of them are still trying to like figure parts of themselves out. Yeah. Of themselves to try to figure out like their friend group again. Right. I kind of love the way that that. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. there's, I think there's a funny thing about, um, about the teen years where, when you're in it, for some reason, like you're constantly still feeling nostalgic. Like when you're 17, you're nostalgic for being 16, you know, because time is so much more condensed at that age. So I just think those, the, that feeling of poignancy, like what I love about that book is I think you can read it as an adult and feel the poignancy of being young, but you can also read it as a teen and still kind of relate to those feelings. Um, 
because you've already experienced at, at 15, 16, 17, you've already experienced friendships that have grown apart and things that you thought would go one way that that just didn't. And um, I think that's really kind of what the book is about. I'm curious because you've been in this industry for so long. And I mean, we've, we've already discussed it, you know, editor. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you kind of sound like you were there kind of from the beginning, you know, you you were there back in 2003, I think you mentioned, you mm-hmm. kind of started editorially and stuff. But I'm just curious to know, like, how have you seen YA, I guess, grow or change over the years? How, what has that evolution been like? Because you've kind of had somewhat of a front seat to that. Yeah, I mean, that's probably something that could be the subject of an entire separate interview. But uh, I guess, I mean, it's grown a lot. You know, what's funny is that even in 2003, I do think there was a sense of, wow, we're in the young adult renaissance, you know, which is what how people feel now, I think. But really, there was such explosive growth then. And, you know, that was right around the time that Twilight came out, um, which obviously was, you know, Regardless of whatever you may think about Twilight, um, it was a giant phenomenon um, in the YA world, you know, the likes of which we had not seen. And I think that obviously what it drew attention to was the fact that maybe we were taking for granted who the audience even was, because all of a sudden, you know, we realized, oh my God, adults are reading these books and, you know, maybe we don't really know our readership as, as well as we thought. And, and maybe the, the limitations of the category or the sort of narrowness of the category are a little bit false. I think there's always been in young adult, as opposed to, you know, kind of adult fiction, grown up people, um, for young adults, there's always these age brackets, you know, it's either 12 and up or 14 and up or 10 and up, you know, the different the different age brackets that are meant to kind of suggest, you know, is it PG or PG-13, that kind of thing. And I think that there's a lot of quote unquote gatekeepers, meaning booksellers, librarians, teachers, parents, et cetera, who really feel that it is important to kind of moderate the content of what young people read. And that's completely understandable, but it means that a lot of how publishing looked at YA was um, through the lens of like, you know, defining the category in these restrict terms. And I think that, you know, then you have books like Twilight that sort of just break out and you suddenly realize like maybe that strictness is not, is a little bit like a, a false identifier. And then I think from there, there's just been so many other kind of similar realizations. I mean, obviously more recently, you know, with the push for We Need Diverse Books, you know, I think once again, it's sort of like, oh, wait, maybe there's not just one type of reader, you know? And I think it's so it's so naive, but that's what I was saying before about, you know, publishing is such an old industry that you do sometimes get this these entrenched ways of thinking where publishers are sort of looking out at the world going, okay, well, look, here's what we saw. Um, this is the demographic of people who are buying this book. So we should just market to those people and we'll just keep doing that. But it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because, you know, you're only marketing to a certain group of people and then they're going to keep buying the same books. And then you're going to keep saying, well, these are the only books we should publish because these are the only people buying books. And um, at a certain point, I think, especially with, you know, this again, makes me sound old, but with the the, the rise of social media, you know, it was Friendster, then MySpace and then Facebook. And I was like, oh, should we get on Facebook? I don't know. And yeah, so I think with the rise of social media, it's suddenly become more democratic because now readers and people who are hungry for books, and people who feel there aren't enough books being published for them, you know, are able to communicate that, you know, and publishers are able to hear it now in a way that they honestly had their heads in the sand before. So now it's like, wait a second, maybe instead of saying, well, you know, these are the only readers, the only book buyers we know of, so let's do books for them. Instead, you can say, well, why don't we try doing a way bigger range of content and see who else we can market to, you know, see who else comes to the table, see who else is hungry for these books. And turns out, I mean, there are, you know, thousands of readers uh, in every category who are hungry for all sorts of different types of books. So I think there has been a huge diversification and um, definitely, you know, movements like we need diverse books have you know, been behind that in a huge way and in terms of being vocal about that and and showing the inequities that exist in, you know, current publishing. Uh, But so I do think that every stage 
in the past 15 years has been in one way or another a realization that readers are more complicated and more diverse than we thought, whether it has to do with age, whether it has to do with how they read, are they reading, you know, electronically, are they reading on a certain device, you know, or, you know, again, whether it's, it's whatever way you look at it, YA has been reaching more and more different people, different types of people to the point where I think now we're at a time where we are no longer really thinking about, we're no longer really thinking about the category as limited by audience at all. You know, uh, really the category is only limited by certain ideas of the kinds of storytelling that fit YA. Like it's a much more arbitrary delineation, you know? Yeah. I think you're not gonna have a lot of books about grown up characters, you know? You're not gonna necessarily have like a, I don't know, a, a literary mystery about like a, a 45 year old lawyer or whatever. You're not gonna publish that for YA. <laughs> um, you know, I think there are certain things about the YA category that people are drawn to. I think there tends to be more redemptive storytelling. That doesn't necessarily mean happy endings, but it usually means that you kind of present something that ends with hope. I think there's also uh, a tradition of just sort of higher stakes, frankly, like more fun storytelling, you know? Um, I think, you know, in YA, people always just want um, big storytelling, I guess you could say. Whereas sometimes maybe in adult literature, that's not the case. It's more subtle or nuanced or um, jaded things like that. So I guess the, the differentiations have become less and less. I don't know. Once again, another sort of long winded answer, but um, a good answer though. <laughs> years of publishing. So there's, there's a lot that's happened. Well, when, when you were talking about that too, I was thinking one of the things we've discussed on this podcast before is, and maybe you'll disagree. I, I think this is mostly me who feels this way is in the past in YA, there's been like these blockbuster books. Yeah. If you will, you've mm -hmm. had Twilight, you've had Harry Potter, Towards the end of it, its latter half, Hunger Games, Divergent, and now they're kind of there doesn't seem to be like that one big blockbuster mm. that the broader audience is embracing. Mm -hmm. It seems to be more that there are these standalone novels and stuff that mm. are just people are really embracing. Like they're the ones carrying YA right now. I don't know, mm. is that fair to say? You know, I'm thinking of things like The Hate You Give, um, mm -hmm. Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda. Um, yeah, no, I would agree with that, and I think that. Um, I think that, you know, to some degree, there has been a very clear trajectory of growth in YA, kind of when you look at it from the larger scale, like kind of unwavering growth, really. But I think that within that, you do see cycles and patterns. So I do think there are cycles of interest, whether they come from the market, meaning the actual readers, or whether they just come from the temperament of the publisher kind of getting bored with one thing and then putting a lot of energy into another thing. And then, you know, it's hard to say where the cycle really begins, but I do think there are those cycles. So, you know, there was a lot of energy behind fantasy for the last few years. And I think that there've been recently um, just a lot of energy going into contemporary. I think it has to do with the political climate. I think with a lot of political strife, people feel like contemporary is a way to really connect people with with authentic experience that's going on and kind of create empathy in a very real direct way. Um, but, you know, fantasy, I think also, you know, a lot of people, I, I saw a lot of big fantasy deals happening, you know, in 2016 and 2017. And I think a lot of that is you can show um, kind of resistance and you can show rebellion and you can show revolution on a grand scale on a large stage in fantasy. So, um, I, I do think that fantasy is still somewhat robust, but yeah, in terms of those breakout hits like Hunger Games and so on, um, I mean, I, I, one thing I always kind of say about those really astronomical blockbusters is that the reason they are huge is because they are the very few books read by non-readers and everything else is capped by the glass ceiling of like how many people actually read books, you know? Um, and when you get those sort of breakout hits, these are people who maybe have never picked up a book um, or haven't in years. And then they pick up Harry Potter, you know, or they pick up the Hunger Games. So I think that's kind of a magical moment because that's a moment where you convert new readers kind of out of thin air, if you will. So really it's sort of magical and transformative, but it's also rare because 99.999% of the time, what publishing is doing is they're making books for, for pre-existing readers. Um, and it's, 
it's just much harder to kind of crack through that out into the broader world of people who are saying, you know what, I'm not gonna buy a video game today. I'm not gonna go to the movies today. I'm not gonna do any of the other things that I would normally do with my time. I'm gonna buy a book and read it. And for people who never make that decision and then they do for that one book, I think you start to realize kind of what a big, what a big task that is to achieve and why it's so rare. Um, and why it's, when it does happen, it's like felt across the world, you know? So I'm sure we will have more books like that. Um, and, you know, I do think like, uh, I do think The Hate You Give is an example of, you know, I've definitely been seeing a lot of people, at least maybe not non-readers, but readers who don't normally read YA, you know, picking up that book. Um, so it's definitely breaking a lot of barriers, but, um, but I, I, I think that a lot of that is just ebb and flow. I never thought of it that way. That's that's really interesting. Sorry, I keep muting my mic because like it's like somebody upstairs is just running <laughs> and it's catching that. Have you, have you guys ever seen that YouTube video of the um I forget what they call it, like the the ceiling artists or something? It's basically like this couple who just purposely makes a lot of noise on their floor, so the downstairs neighbors are constantly wondering what they're doing. I've never seen yeah. that. Yeah, it's sort of that sounds awful. Oh man. Well, I think uh maybe Michael can go ahead and ask the last question because I think we're um, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, like rounding off. You've kind of like you've spoke there a lot about how why it's changed over the years and like the current state of it. But how where do you see it going? Like in the future, and the sort of kind of things that you'd like to see. Yeah, okay. my gosh, the, fam the the crystal ball question. Um, hmm, I should have prepared a better answer for this ahead of time. <laughs> um, you know, I think that it, at every moment when we feel that YA is too you know, quote unquote, saturated, you know, meaning too full already, too many books, we are then proven wrong. <laughs> and um, I think that that will continue to be the case and it will continue to grow. But I also think that because there are, there is such a, a wealth of, of different types of books now available and continuing to become available, it's in a way liberating because I think like when you look at the Times, of you know twilight being the big phenomenon right all the publishers are sort of chasing that as much as possible and so you know if you had another big vampire series you were good to go but if you had something that was sort of off the beaten track and didn't feel related to that trend um you might not be able to get it published or you might not be able to get it marketed and supported now i think since we're less trend driven right now it actually means that every book kind of has more of a fair shot um, and it has a shot based on its own merits, not based on what it's similar to. And I think that is super exciting for me because I've always been interested in books that are sort of cross genre or again, representing a voice or an experience that we haven't seen yet, or just taking something familiar, but doing it in a totally unfamiliar way. So I think now is the time to, to tell stories like that and not not be kind of beholden to any sort of trend or any sort of expectation at all. So even though people I think feel a little, in the industry, I think there's a little bit intimidation, like how are we possibly gonna keep pushing more books out into the world when there are so many already? Um, but I think there is equally the sense of optimism and, and just creative freedom that's very exciting. So I hope to see that continue. Um, I, don't want, I don't want us to start chasing the next trend and saying, okay, you know, let's all just do dystopian now again or whatever. I'd really like to see to see publishers continue to put their neck out for books that are unusual, for books that surprise them, and for books that you know are going to actually make a difference. Um, and I think it's exciting, like I said, that we're in a, a climate where even though there's a lot of political tension in the world, in the creative industries, certainly in the in the book industry, people feel empowered to do something about it. You know, they feel empowered to use what we do to connect and. So that I think I hope that that will that will continue to expand and grow. And I think there's still just a ton of work to do in terms of diversity. You know, I just think that that's kind of we're nowhere near um, equity or parity. So it's just I think that's going to be unfortunately possibly years long, maybe even decades long effort to try and really um, continue to to push in that direction. And there's going to be growing pains along the way, I think, as publishers try and figure out how to get it right and and probably make mistake after mistake along the way. Um, but I think that's okay. I think that's just part of the process of, again, shifting something that has been so kind of white, Western-centric 
um, and male centric for so, so long, it's not going to be something that you just flip over overnight. Um, so I think that that's going to just continue to, to happen. Yeah. That's as much as I can predict. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time you took uh, today to talk to us and I guess share everything with our listeners. And I think this was awesome. I, I loved speaking with you and everything. So, thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Um, I hope I didn't nerd out too much about the, the publishing stuff, but um, it's always really fun to kind of just talk about the industry on a broad level. You know, it's, it's a flawed but fascinating world to be and I feel like this is the proper place to nerd out. <laughs> We're, we all like nerding out about that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, if, people wanted, if people wanted to learn more about you, where can they find you online? Um, I have a website, um, which is just LexaHillier.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. It's Lexa underscore Hillier. And I'm on uh, Instagram as Proof of Lex. We also have a Glasstown Entertainment website, which is just GlassstoneEntertainment.com. Um, and we have all of our social channels as well. So yeah, lots of ways to follow us and connect. Awesome. And just again, for anyone who's listened to Lexa and wants to check out her works, her three novels are Proof of Forever, and then Spindle Fire and its sequel, Winter Glass, which came out just earlier this year in April. Um, and we didn't really get to talk too much about it, but you also have a book of poetry mm -hmm. called uh, Acquainted with the Cold. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everyone should go check those out. Um, check them out, guys. Yeah, we'll put them in the show notes too. So it'll be really easy. You have no excuse. <laughs> um, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye.